You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We have the privilege to open up the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, uh, the only perfect part of the worship service, God's perfect Word. So if you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would have your way in our hearts today that we would learn from you, that we would go away praising the glories of your grace in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Today in Romans 3, 21 through 26, we are going to see how we can be made right with God by believing in the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Being justified as a gift by His grace. How for His own glory, God freely saves sinners. How God's saving activity, reaching to rescue and give right standing with Him, is applied to human hearts. How God displays His righteousness giving eternal life in Christ. This passage is the heartbeat of Romans. It's the epicenter of salvation glory. It's the pinnacle of redemptive retelling. One person said it's the marrow or the heart of theology. Another said it's the acropolis of scripture. It is a supreme statement of the gospel. And just personally, God has used this passage of scripture hugely in my life to confirm and to remind me of his gift of grace. Romans 3, 21 to 26, tells us three big truths. This forms our outline. Verses 21 to 23, we see the saving righteousness of God. Verses 24 and 25, the sacrificial death of Christ. And verse 26, the sovereign salvation of believers. So you have the saving righteousness of God, the sacrificial death of Christ, and the sovereign salvation of believers. Now, 
you're going to think, I'm going to predict this, you're going to think that I am making the same point over and over and over again in this sermon, because I will be. Let's look at verses 21 to 23, first of all. The saving righteousness of God. Look how verse 21 starts. With these two words, but now. But now. Contrary to what he has just said. Where we basically had gotten launched face first into a mirror that has shown us our depravity and sin. The Spirit painting us in a corner of absolute helplessness, shredding self-determination, closing down all escape routes, and cutting away selfish pride. And now Paul says, but now. In chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, we saw how sin affects sinners. Not only must we admit that we are sinners, we must accept how problematic and even automatic our sin is. Our minds are corrupted by sin. We don't understand God's truth apart from Christ. Our motives are twisted. Our wills willfully wander. Our tongues are bad actors. We lie to protect our own interests and damage others. Our relationships are ruinous. We do not know peace and we war with others. Added to that, we are God's enemies. This is what the Word of God tells us about ourselves. You get launched face first into a mirror. And it's a depressingly detailed delineation of our deep depravity. We are helpless apart from Christ. We should all be dead. No hope for a better day but for God's grace. Seekers do not seek God. People do not have a real passion to know God. They, they don't want to meet the real God. Self-centeredness controls all spiritual searching for meaning and experience outside of Christ. Where we try to get blessings from God and expect God to serve us and shape himself to meet our needs. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God I believe in. Our goodness is bad. The evil, one person wrote, the evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. 18th century preacher George Whitfield said, Our best duties are as so many splendid sins. You must not only be made sick of your sin, you must be sick of your righteousness. All your duties and performances. There must be deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol taken out of your heart. And the right response to all of that is to admit we are sinners who have nothing to say to God, no defense or offer to make, that we are in desperate trouble. 17th century mathematician and philosopher Pascal said, nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine of human depravity and sin. Yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. 
We can't make heads or tails of life without grasping this doctrine. Paul says, but. That's how he starts. He reverses what was before. He literally throws things in reverse. I think that few words in the English language are better than but at the beginning of verse 21. Verse 20 tells us no one's going to be declared righteous, and through the law we become conscious of our sin, but from the darkness of human sin, Paul is now holding up the sparkling diamond of the gospel. Paul went for the jugular in Romans 3, 9 through 20. He says, everyone is under the power of sin. All people are absolutely sinful, essentially aware of their sin, and ultimately accountable to God. Universal helplessness and hopelessness without Christ. All the world guilty, quiet before God, because our representative Adam sinned. We inherited his guilt. We have a corrupt nature. Our thoughts and our actions and our deeds are condemned. But now, but now, we are on the brink of the best news anyone has ever heard. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it is the litmus test of a person's Christianity If you've been following along and reading in Romans and you read those two words, but now, and you do not feel a leap of joy, you may not be a Christian. But now, God intervenes. We're hopeless until God intervenes. And he acts on behalf of his righteousness. But now, let's go on, but now God's righteousness is manifested, literally Uh, made clear. Perfect tense emphasizes uh, the state or condition. He is making it clear, and he makes it clear apart from the law. The saving righteousness of God cannot be obtained by following the law or by anything that you do. But he says the law and the prophets bear witness, testify to it. The saving righteousness of God was promised in the Old Testament. The saving righteousness of God fulfills what was promised in the Old Testament. The Old Testament helps you understand the righteousness of God. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 tells us God keeps his promises. Believing his promise brings you into right relationship with him. That's the biggest idea in Romans. It's the biggest idea in this whole letter of Romans. You can take God at his word. His righteousness has been manifested. It's been put on display. You look at the Old Testament deliverance from Egypt. That foreshadowed a greater deliverance, the greater deliverance accomplished by Jesus the Messiah on the cross. Blood of Jesus fulfills what the Old Testament sacrifices anticipated. And it was never promised that through obedience to God's commands or perfect living, it was always by grace through faith. Abraham believed God 
And it was counted to him, reckoned to him, credited to him as righteousness. So in gospel preaching, something that has always been true becomes crystal clear for all to see. The gospel does not introduce a new kind of righteousness that wasn't available before Christ. It more clearly shows the righteousness that put Abraham and David and others right before God. None of God's past actions and Old Testament promises make sense apart from Christ crucified. God's saving righteousness is taught in the Old Testament. And it's clearly taught in the gospel. It comes only from Jesus Christ to those who yield to him. And God's righteousness proves that God is right to rescue guilty people by the death of Christ. Move on to verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the righteousness that we're talking about here. God's righteousness is saving activity, transforming people into the image of Christ. You experience God's salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. The saving righteousness of God is through faith in Christ for all who believe. I told you I was going to say the same thing over and over again today. The theme of Romans, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel received through faith in Christ. Right standing credited to all in Christ by God. That's glorious truth. Glorious truth that God justifies guilty sinners through faith in Christ based on his character and his mighty work at the cross. Now think of righteousness with me for a moment. Think of what we might call human righteousness, where we say, wow, that person is righteous. They've been doing a lot of good deeds. Think of it as a performance record that opens or closes doors for you, like a a resume, okay? So like if you want a job, you send in a resume, and it lists all your qualifications, all the things about you that shouldn't disqualify you from getting the job. And if nothing disqualifies you, you're hoping to get the job. Well, every religion and culture treats God the same way. You show your spiritual resume with all your good works, and God is supposed to accept you. Paul literally drops a bomb when he says, but now. The righteousness of God, the perfect record given to the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. No one makes offers like this. No one makes offers like this. The Buddhists don't make offers like this. The Mormons don't make offers like this. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't make offers like this. Humanistic philosophy doesn't offer you something like this. And we are trying so hard to be accepted. And the gospel tells us God gives it freely. By it we are accepted. Verse 22, by faith in Christ to all who believe. 
Verse 23, it can't come from your own efforts. Verse 24, it's given freely, without cause, literally. Freely, without cause, for no reason, but whatever reason God has. When Jesus said in John 15, 25, they hated me without a cause, literally, they hated me freely. They hated me for no reason. You get saved for no reason but God's pleasure and plan. Nothing about you. Because there's no distinction. I'm going to move on into verse 23. There's, there's no distinction. Here's the reason. Here's the reason there's no distinction. For all have sinned. We've missed the mark. And we've fallen short. That literally means show up late. Miss it. Miss the appointment. Fail to reach the goal to be lacking, to be wanting, to come up short of the glory of God. That great word, doxa, glory. We have failed to give glory or receive the glory that God gives or conform to his image. And he's talking about the glory that Adam lost when he fell in sin. His loss of glory connected to the loss of eternal life. And God's glory will be restored only to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Paul is reflecting really on, on, on Adam's loss of glory because all people are in Adam. No distinction. All have violated God's law. Not only have all sinned, but even believers lack the glory of God. It's easy to think, well, I got saved, now I I, I don't fall short of the glory of God anymore. Oh no, if you're a believer, you'll be falling short of the glory of God until you die or Christ comes again, whichever comes first. The glory of God is an end times gift. We will possess the glory of God fully only at the end of the age. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can clean up crime scenes all you want. In Texas, in Egypt, in Los Angeles, and anywhere else in the world. But the why is going to haunt us. It always haunts us. What motivates murderous rampages? What motivates gossip? What motivates gluttony? What motivates this unthinkable that, that gets perpetrated and our rationalized sin? What's the motivation? God gives the ultimate cause. You go back into chapter 1 of Romans uh, Verses 28 and 29, there's the reason. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done, filled with every kind of wickedness and evil and greed and depravity, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. Their ways are vile. No one does good. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, who seek for God. All have become corrupt. No one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that means that any way that you live where you are not giving God supreme glory, you're sinning. This shows why the atonement is absolutely necessary. Look with me at verses 24 and 25. 
not only do we see in this passage the saving righteousness of God, but we see the sacrificial death of Christ. The sacrificial death of Christ. You see the saving righteousness of God in the death of Christ. And, And what happens in the death of Christ is his judging righteousness is revealed. His judging righteousness. Look at verse 24. Justified. That word is big. Justified. Um, and by the way, that emphasizes a repeated action in, in the case of each person who believes. Justified freely as a gift. Without payment, without cost. It kind of uh, takes us to Isaiah 55 about coming to God without any payment or cost. So justified freely as a gift. I think those are some of the best words in all of the Bible. Justified freely as a gift by his grace through the redemption, the release, the deliverance, the payment of a price that is in Christ Jesus. So all believers are declared righteous as a free gift of God's grace through the ransom accomplished by Jesus Christ at the cross. Righteousness comes through redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And redemption is an Old Testament idea. Here was Israel living in an agrarian society, an agricultural society. And in that day, you could easily get yourself into debt. It was very easy to get into debt. In fact, um, many times people would have to sell themselves into slavery. While it was easy to get into debt, it was very hard to get out of it. You'd have to pay with your entire life to get out of it. It took everything. God's law made provision for a kinsman redeemer uh, who could buy you out of debt, who could buy you out of slavery and set you free. We see it in Leviticus 25.25. And the idea here is that through Jesus, slaves to sin and death and hell, who could never pay their debt, have their debt forgiven. It's like if you showed up at the bank and you said, hey, you know, um, would you mind if you forgive my, my mortgage debt or my credit card debt? And, you know, it's, it's in the upwards of, you know, maybe $200,000, but I, I, I would like to know if you would forgive this debt. You know, they'll probably laugh, snicker, say, um, that's not possible. You signed up. You signed the agreement, the little box you checked that you didn't read. The, you, told, you said you read it all, but you didn't. Well, this is the way it is. And so when you hear that God justifies people freely by his grace as a gift, you start to wonder about God. I remember I had someone say to me once, I was a brand new believer and I was sharing the gospel with someone and they said, this seems too free. This seems too free. I think I need to be able, I have to do something for this gift. And they couldn't grasp the fact that, no, actually it's free. Many of us can't grasp the fact that it's free. So people start questioning God. They say, well, how can God mercifully save people without soft-peddling his justice? You know, how do the, here's the big question really, how does the saving and the judging righteousness of God meet? Well, the saving and judging righteousness of God meets at the cross in the death of Christ. His justice satisfied as Christ's death paid for human sin. 
He extends mercy by virtue of Christ's death to those who place their faith and their trust in Christ. So God is just in justifying the one who has faith in Jesus and judging the one who rejects Christ. Going to verse 25, it says that Christ whom God put forward, there was a purpose to it, he placed him there and and there was a design to it he put him forth publicly as a propitiation is one of my favorite bible words we must understand this word propitiation where god took his wrath against sinners upon himself in christ it 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 speaks of the mercy seat of the old testament It was by Christ's blood, as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. The Father makes his people right with him through the work of the Son. Offered Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, bought us, purchased our redemption, makes the unrighteous righteous, that's propitiation. The Greek word is halastrion, and it, it, it doesn't mean what some Bible translations put in there. Some Bible translations will take the word propitiation and substitute it with the word expiation. And if you have that in your Bible, expiation instead? Expiation is only part of propitiation. Expiation means to wipe away sin, like you clean up all the blood. <laughs> expiation is wiping away sin. Propitiation includes expiation, but much more. That God's wrath is no longer pointed at you anymore like a cannon. God's wrath is no longer trained on you. Jesus took your place. Jesus took the wrath. And at the cross, the judge made judgment. He made judgment. A willing sacrifice died in our place. God is not indifferent to sin. He is the judge, capital J, judge. He is the judge. John Murray wrote, God loved the objects of his wrath so much he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of his wrath. God puts the justice on himself. So the cross is not a compromise between the love and the wrath of God. Both are satisfied fully in the same act. So at the cross, the wrath and love of God were expressed perfectly. The the cross demonstrates God's saving and judging righteousness. You can say it again. God set forth his son as a sacrifice to satisfy his wrath and pay for sin through the blood of Christ, and this gift is available to us. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Go on in verse 25, the last part of verse 25, and it gives us the reason. This was to show or demonstrate, give proof of God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, his patience, God is so patient, he passed over former sins. Now God punished all sin on his son at the cross, right? So how did he pass over former sins? Well, God in his patience deferred payment 
of sins in Old Testament times. He accepted Abraham and Moses and David and all the Old Testament believers when they trusted his mercy and repented of their sins on the basis of Christ's future work. In his patience, he passed over sins previously committed. He did not give out the full and immediate punishment for sin. He punished sinners in the past, but he provided opportunity to repent. Romans 2.4 says his kindness leads us to repentance. But he put forth Jesus as a sacrifice to demonstrate his judging righteousness. That God is just and he justifies. He upholds his standards. His wrath went on Christ at the cross and he extends his mercy and grace toward you in love because he loves and cares for you. You get in your car and uh, you go southwest of Cortez, Colorado. Uh, you drive 38 miles on Highway 160. You hang a right uh, on Four Corners Monument Road. In a half mile, you're going to run into the only spot in America where you can be at four states at the same time. People like stand, 2,000 people a day stand in, stand in line to stand in that spot, right? You got Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah. Well, Romans 3, 21 to 26, is the four corners of Scripture. You see God's righteousness, his propitiation, his redemption, his forbearance, all in one place. Because at the cross, God's justice and wrath and love and saving righteousness meet, and they meet quite gloriously. So in this passage, you see the, the saving righteousness of God, and then the sacrificial death of Christ, which shows the the judging righteousness of God. And then you see a third thing in verse 26. Go, to me, go with me to verse 26. You see the sovereign salvation of believers. The sovereign salvation of believers. Look at verse 26. This was to show, again, demonstrating, put it on full display, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. He is fair and he is merciful. He would not be righteous if he neglected to show that he is righteous. He puts it on full display. Got all sorts of Christmas displays right now, right? Well, he puts it on full display, especially in Christ, and, get this, in the life of a believer. The gospel, chapter 1, verse 17 told us, reveals the righteousness of God given. And he has put it on public display, you, you see this, uh, verse 21, it's manifested. You see that the law and the prophets testify to it. You see that, verse 25, God put forth Christ publicly. You see that God demonstrates his righteousness. You go to verse 26, and it's just repeat. The primary idea is the righteousness of God. You see it in verses 21 and 22 and 25 and 26. Here's the interesting thing. I don't know if you know this, but the righteousness here is even more prevalent than you'd think. Like, well, it's in here like four or five times. Sure it is. But it's very hard to tell in, in, your, in our English Bible translations. But there are more words in this passage that mean the same thing. So, again, hard to tell in an Engl English Bible translation, but the words righteousness and justified are from the same word. 
kaios, righteousness, and really you've got righteousness times seven in this passage. Seven times. Verse 21, the righteousness of God, which you could actually translate a justification from God. Verse 22, the righteousness of God. Verse 24, where it says being justified, that could be translated righteous. Kind of, you have to coin a new term for it, but it literally means righteous. God righteouses you. Verse 25, righteousness. Verse 26, show his righteousness that he might be just. That can be translated righteous. Same word. And the justifier. That can be translated righteouser. Again, you have to coin a new phrase for this, but he is he righteouses you, and he is the righteouser of you. God righteouses you. You go out today and you start talking like that, people are going to look at you kind of funny, so we might want to leave it right in here, but just think about it. You can't overstate this truth. You just can't. This verse is huge. And, and it, the idea that God is just and the justifier means he is righteous and he's the one that makes you righteous. God's righteousness, his saving, his rescuing you, giving you right standing, that's a sovereign work of God received. How? By the empty hand of faith. We are made right with God. We are legally declared right with God, righteous by grace through faith alone. One, one writer put it this way, don't ever think that faith is a work of human merit smuggled in the back door. See, faith is not something you do for credit. The value is not in your faith, but in Christ to whom you cling by faith. Your faith doesn't save you. Jesus does. Your faith isn't your savior. Jesus is. So you cannot boast, and you can't like walk in the room and say, uh, yeah, give me some props here because I put my faith in Jesus. There's a subtle misunderstanding of the gospel that will hinder your assurance in Christ, and it will boost your pride. Verse 27, and we're going to see this next week, is about to tell us the gospel gives us no basis for boasting, no basis, no footing whatsoever. Faith is in Christ's work on the cross. Saving faith is in Jesus Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. Jesus Christ crucified. And so all who believe are made righteous by God. One writer put it this way. The one who has faith is no longer looking at himself. No longer looking to himself. No longer looking at anything he once was. Does not look at what he is now. Or what he hopes to be looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and rests on that alone. Job asked a question that a lot of people ask. People have been asking this question for centuries. How can a person be right with God? How can a man be just with God? Because God answers the problem of human sin. Luther calls this doctrine of justification by faith the article of a standing or falling church, the heart of Christ's church. Salvation is based on this doctrine. S. Lewis Johnson put it this way, the imputation of God's righteousness to people who know they are sinners and believe. 
I hope that's you today. Here's what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture. Seriously, he's, he's, is it what he's saying? Okay, everyone, time out. I'm going to say it once more, and I'm going to say it really clearly. God put forth Jesus as a sacrifice to demonstrate his perfect righteousness. That's what Paul is saying. He punishes sin. He makes righteous. He justifies. He gives salvation, saving righteousness to the one who has faith in Christ. So when it, when it all boils down, here's what grace is. Grace is God providing you by Jesus' death, all the righteousness you need. He makes you right with him. It's important that, that justice is upheld in the universe by God. You could be at a, a sporting event, let's say, and, and the referee makes a big mistake and changes the game. Maybe someone cheats. Maybe there's unfairness in your workplace or in your home. Crimes may go unpunished. But justice is important and God is just. And his righteousness is comprehensive. Both saving and judging. And I think there's a false idea floating around about God and how he does what he does. A lot of people say, you know, God must forgive. 18th century Empress Catherine of Russia said this, I shall be an autocrat, that's my trade, and the good Lord will forgive me, that is his. Poet W.H. Auden said, I like to commit crimes. God likes to forgive them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. No, God's job is justice. How can you be made right with God? By believing in the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our problem is dire. Our disease is fatal. We're in trouble. We should feel the terrible danger we are in. We want justice, yet we must be punished by justice. You can't put yourself right with God. God puts people right with him only through Jesus. Only Jesus paid sin's penalty. And the foundation is propitiation, sacrifice, a substitute, satisfying God's wrath. Jesus became your sin and guilt, which results in redemption. And God is fair to forgive. Justified by his grace as a gift. I'm not sure if I've ever heard more beautiful words except the name of Jesus. Best gift ever. Best blessing ever. Best free thing ever. I'm going to tell you why this passage means so much to me. Forgive me if I've told you this story before. It was in 19, summer of 1984. Uh, I was sent out by the First Baptist Church of Downey uh, with four other college students to serve the First Baptist Church of Big Bear, for three months, we did children's ministry and youth ministry, local outreach. It was a uh, transforming time for me in my life. It was where God really clarified my desire uh, in, in my heart to serve him full-time in ministry. 
But one Sunday morning, I woke up with an itchy spot in my, on my right thigh, on the inside of my right thigh, and I, I didn't feel good, but I went to church, and after church, I went to the doctor, and they said, yeah, you have the flu, you know, take some Tylenol and go home. So I went back, and I, I went down, laid down for a nap, and I woke up delirious and sweating profusely. And the inside of my right thigh was swollen literally to two times its size. Well, my parents uh, drove up from Downey and came to get me, actually, and drove me down to uh, Daniel Freeman Hospital in Inglewood. It was a hospital I was born at. Uh, it was also the, the 84 LA Olympics was going on right then. It was the official hospital of the Los Angeles Olympics. So I have the, I, have the um, I don't know what to call it. The, I had the privilege of being on, on IVs for three days in, in the official hospital of the LA Olympics. Um, doctor said I was uh, bitten by a brown recluse spider. He said if, if you weren't young and strong, uh, you would have died. So I guess I would die from it today. Um, <laughs> But they sent me home, and they said, hey, rest for a few days, then you can go back up to Big Bear. And this is where Romans 3, 21 to 26 come in, comes in. I remember this. That summer, I was reading through the book of Romans. I was journaling through it even. And I'll never forget the night sitting in my room in Downey, reading this very passage of Scripture. I had been a believer for like two years at that point. That's it. And I just remember at that moment, God impressing the, 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 the full truth of that on my soul in such a way um, that I literally broke down weeping for joy. I was blown away by the fact that God saved me. The goodness of God in saving me. I was awestruck. I was literally awestruck at our sovereign Savior. Here in one long run-on Pauline sentence, you get everything you need to know. One person calls it Bible caviar. It's rich. You know what's interesting? There is absolutely no exhortation in this passage. No exhortation. All declaration of, of God's saving ways which generates a sense of wonder and gratitude and awe uh, for the majesty of God's solution to our sin problem. We can rejoice. We can rejoice in Christ. We can actually go home singing. We can actually go home rejoicing. We can even go home weeping for joy as we understand the wonder and, and, and the praise that is due to God. This, is not, this passage is not about us. It is about God. It's not about me and my salvation. It's about God and his reputation. When God justifies you by faith, he is being God-centered. Fundamental issue is not our salvation, but the glory of God's name. God's desire for his glory is the root of his desire to display his righteousness. Because for his own glory, God freely saves sinners. It should move us to praise God. Lord, we thank you that you are incomparably good, immeasurably loving. Thank you, Lord, that the gospel affirms that our future is literally breaking at the seams with hope. 
Thank you, Lord, that our salvation is a work that we didn't begin and that you alone can finish. We could never have performed our way out of sin or earned our way to your love. We acknowledge that beginning to end, salvation is all of grace, that we contributed nothing but our sin, and you gave everything in your Son. We thank you that for your own glory, you freely save sinners. May we know the wonder and the rightness of you justifying us by faith, and may we go home today singing your praises and living for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.